Welcome to Under the Elks. I'm Lauren Thompson. I'm Pastor Trent Sari, and we're coming to you from WKLC Studios in Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. We are on lucky episode number 13, and we're continuing a conversation that we began about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last episode, we spoke about our Savior during his state of humiliation, the time during which he does not always and fully make use of his divine attributes according to his human nature. And we said in the Apostles' Creed, that would include everything from his conception by the Holy Spirit, his birth of the Virgin Mary, up until the time he was buried in the tomb. So in this episode, we're picking up uh, from there. We're going to talk about Christ's descent into hell and what comes after that what we refer to as Christ's state of exaltation. And if you can kind of uh, remember how we describe the humiliation, then it's no surprise that we would describe his state of exaltation as that time during which he always and fully uses his divine attributes, even according to his human nature. And that's going to be important in future episodes as we talk about where is Jesus now and those types of questions. So what is Christ's state of exaltation? In Philippians chapter 2, St. Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So from the time of Christ's descent into hell on into eternity, Jesus is in what we call his state of exaltation, in which he now makes full use of his divine powers, even according to his human nature, for the benefit of his church. So we're going to kind of go through the creed now and talk about those steps of his exaltation and maybe explore them a little further. And that begins with his descent into hell. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion over this topic. If you were to ask the average person on the street, why did Jesus descend into hell? What do you suppose they would answer to that? Uh, Maybe, I don't know. Maybe um, to pay for sins in general? Yeah, I think think most people would be under the impression that Jesus went to hell to suffer for us. And it's important that we remember what Jesus cried out from the cross on Good Friday. He said, to Telestai, it is finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done in order for our redemption to be complete. So Jesus' descent into hell is not to suffer. Now, what makes this uh, topic a little bit more tricky is the fact that the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. Uh, We have a couple of statements concerning his descent into hell, but we don't have a lot to go on. So a lot of people speculate, and they assume they understand what that's all about. So we're going to take a look at a couple of passages here uh, that describe Jesus' descent into hell. So we're talking about, uh, you know, he's buried in the tomb, he's he's dead, uh, he's vivified, he's brought to life in the spirit, he descends into hell, and then on the third day he rose again. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, it says, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. 
So there we see that the Bible speaks of Jesus' descent into hell as being for the purpose of making a proclamation. Also in St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, it says, He, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Christ, having been made alive in his grave, descended into hell, not to suffer, but to proclaim his victory over his enemies. And that might sound strange, but the illustration that I always use is, uh, if you're a baseball fan, you probably watch the World Series. If you're a football fan, you probably watch the Super Bowl. And what normally happens after that team wins the World Series or the Super Bowl? What happens next? Big celebration. A big celebration. Usually they, they come home to their hometown with the trophy, and there's a big parade, and they ride through the streets to the cheers of the crowd, and they hold up that trophy and see, you know, we won. In many ways, that's the way you can picture Christ's descent into hell. He goes to proclaim his victory. He's not there to give the people in hell a second chance as if, you know, they can, they can get out now. It's that he has triumphed over death. He's triumphed over the grave. He's triumphed over sin. He's triumphed over hell itself and Satan. So it's like he shoves that victory right in their face, descends into hell to proclaim his victory. He has authority over all things. And also, too, the, the promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the beginning was fulfilled. That's right. Yep. Uh, going all the way back, uh, the seed of the woman has indeed crushed the serpent's head. The victory is certain. And that's going to come out more now as we talk about the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection for us. So just to kind of give you a brief summary of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, remember this takes place around 30 AD. We know that he died on Good Friday uh, during the Passover celebration early on Sunday morning, which would have been the first day of the week, the third day after his death. I remember that the Jews counted days, even a part of a day was considered a day, so this would have been the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's this great earthquake, and an angel comes down from heaven, rolls back the stone from the tomb, and then sits on it. The guards fall to the ground, and then they later just take off because they're scared. And when the women who had followed Jesus come to finish preparing his body for burial, the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And later on Easter Sunday and during the following 40 days, Christ himself appears at least nine times to individuals and groups of disciples, convincing them beyond any doubt that he is truly risen from the dead. So, on the third day after his death, Christ rose from the grave, and over the next 40 days, he showed himself alive to his disciples. Which, uh, again, begs the question, I know some people dispute the resurrection. I mean, scoffers, doubters would say, well, it doesn't really matter if he rose from the dead or not. What matters is that we try to live this life that Jesus would have us live. But that's not true. And it's, it's biblically not true. 
if Christ is not risen from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, St. Paul would say. So we might ask, well, why is the resurrection of Jesus of such importance and comfort to us? In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul writes, He, or that is Christ, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, notice here that St. Paul says that the resurrection proves that he is the Son of God. So, you know, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, how do we know that he's not one of these false messiahs that had come before him? Uh, he could have, anybody can say that they're the Son of God. Obviously, he, he, the works that he did proved that he, he truly was that. But if he doesn't rise from the dead, we would be wondering, uh, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he really wasn't who he said he was. But the resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is truly who he said he is. Now, the other side of that is it also tells us that his word is true and trustworthy. Because remember, he told his disciples before this all happened, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the religious leaders, I'm going to be beaten, flogged, crucified, die, and on the third day rise again. He tells them that multiple times. Now, if he doesn't rise from the dead, huh, I don't know if we can believe anything he says, right? I mean, that's the way, that's the natural conclusion. But because he does rise just as he said he would, we also know that his word is true and trustworthy. We can take it to the bank. You can count on it. You can lean on it. It's not going to give way underneath you. Now, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And of course, the, the flip side of that, so that's the, the negative side. You know, if he's not risen, here's what it means. But in Romans chapter 4, Paul writes, Jesus was delivered up for our trans trespasses and raised for our justification. So the resurrection proves that God the Father has accepted Jesus' payment for your sins. If Jesus does not rise, you don't know. I mean, yeah, he said he's going to pay for my sins. Uh but he didn't rise. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, maybe, maybe God accepted it. Maybe he didn't. How can you be sure? The resurrection proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God the Father has accepted Christ's payment for your sins. Jesus said it is finished. God raised him from the dead. It's certain. So the resurrection proves that. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, Because I live, you also will live. And then also in John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So, St. Paul calls Christ the first fruits of the resurrection, implying that there will be more to follow. And uh, the resurrection proves that there is such thing as the bodily resurrection from the dead. He's the first, but there will be many more, especially as we think about the last day when all of the dead will be raised. But if there is no resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead, Christ is not raised. You know, that kind of shoots a, a hole in the whole deal. But because he's raised, we know that death does not have a hold on us either. The grave does not have the last say. We too will rise from the dead. There is a real bodily resurrection. Christ is living proof of this. 
So the resurrection becomes very important for us, uh, for our comfort, for our certainty, for our faith. Uh, it certainly happened. So Christ's resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he was, that he's the Son of God, that his word is true and trustworthy, that he made full payment for my sins and the sins of the whole world, and that God the Father accepted that payment, and that because he rose from the dead, all believers will also rise unto eternal life. Now, that, that brings us to this resurrection period after Jesus rises from the dead where he's on earth for 40 days. And obviously that number 40 is very significant in the scriptures. We think about the 40 years of wilderness wandering of Israel. We think about the rain, 40 days and 40 nights in Noah's time. Uh, we think about Jake, Jesus fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. I mean, the, the number 40 comes up over and over and over in the scriptures. So he's on earth for 40 days after his resurrection. And, uh, you know, what was he doing? I mean, was he just kind of hanging out? What, what was going on during those 40 days besides him showing himself to be alive? And the book of Acts uh, gives us a little bit of details. It says Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus is there during that 40-day 40 40 period, not 40 years, 40-day period, and he's there instructing his disciples. He's giving them instructions as to what they're to be doing. In Matthew chapter 28, we have what's, what's often referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, that, that phrase is kind of interesting. I think it's, it's important that we note, as true God, Jesus always has that authority. So when he says, all authority has been given to me here, he's referring to his human nature, even to his human nature. And he says, go therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, you could say in this way, I am with you always to the end of the age. He commissions his church, he commissions his apostles as to what they are to be doing in the holy ministry, to be preaching the gospel in its truth and purity, to be administering the sacraments, which we'll talk about in a later episode, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, until he returns. And in this way, disciples, believers, followers of Christ are made as God works through that proclamation and that administration of the sacraments. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit for this task. And in Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, this is kind of Mark's uh, version of the Great Commission. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So God wants all people to hear this good news of salvation completely accomplished, won, for all people, all sinners of all time, of all places, this is the greatest news that anyone can hear, that God and sinners are reconciled in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. 
the God-man Savior. Now, what do the scriptures teach about Jesus' ascension into heaven? Obviously, he's on earth for a period of 40 days, but then he ascends into heaven. And he had, he had talked about this beforehand, that it was to their benefit that he would go away and that, that he would send them the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would uh, guide them into all truth and so on. So in Luke chapter 24, it says that Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And that kind of language, I think, can be misleading to people. Not, not that it's in and of itself it's misleading, but I think a lot of people misunderstand what Jesus' ascension is all about. They think it's his departure, he's no longer here. And that's not really what's going on here. But I think a lot of people envision the world that we live in as sort of a two-story house. We, we, even, we even use that kind of language. We say, uh, I'm praying to the man upstairs. Or I wonder if the, the good man upstairs can hear what I'm saying or he sees what's going on. As though Jesus is like the, the divine landlord. He's Mr. Roper upstairs or something who's peeking down on us to see what we're doing from time to time. But he's basically absent from our floor. We're down here on the first floor. He's not really here with us. That's not the picture of the scriptures at all. And what a horrible, horrible teaching or, or idea or understanding because it, it really there's no comfort. If you have a, a God who's far away, uh, what comfort is that to you? But often that's kind of the default way that I think a lot of people think about God. He's absent. He, he kind of looks down on us. He kind of checks in with us once in a while, like the landlord peeking out the window or something. Uh, but he's not really present. Notice in the Great Commission, Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And of course, we hear that other promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So when we think about the ascension, we want to understand it properly. Now, the book of Acts also talks about Jesus' ascension. It says in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, on the clouds. When you see him again, he'll be coming in the clouds. That's what the scriptures say. Just as you saw him depart into the clouds. Uh, but notice that it's the clouds that remove him from their sight. It doesn't say Jesus shot up in a rocket far above the atmosphere and now he's off in some distant planet or some other place. It just says he's taken from their sight. His mode of presence is different. He's no longer visibly present. That does not mean that he is not truly present, even with his body and blood. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Remember, his human nature has, is, is made full use of all of his divine attributes, which means he's everywhere present, he's got all power, he's all-knowing, all these things, even according to his human nature. In St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, it says, He who descended, uh, descended into hell is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. That, this is the, this is the kicker right here, 
that he might fill all things. That kind of language is important. I mean, that's not, that doesn't describe a God who's distant. That doesn't describe a Savior who's far away. If he fills all things, he's very much present. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, if we want to find Jesus, we go looking over in the tree in our garden, or that we go out on the lake to find Jesus, you know, with the fish or something like that. Obviously, when, when we want to know where is Jesus for me, he also tells us that too in the gospel as it's proclaimed, and in the sacraments when they're administered according to his institution. So, I know a lot of people will say, well, if he fills all things, then I don't have to go to church to be near to Jesus or to receive his gifts. Uh, that's not true, because God has tied the gifts that Jesus has won for us on the cross, forgiveness, life, and salvation, to the word of the gospel and to baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, if we want to receive God's gifts, we have to go to where those things are distributed, and certainly that takes place in a church. You don't go off to the tree to receive God's gifts. You don't go out to the garden to receive God's gifts. You don't go out on the lake fishing to receive God's gifts. You might appreciate the beauty of his creation. You might certainly, you know, recognize that he must be present here or whatever, but when we're talking about where is he present for us, we must uh, be more specific as to the scriptures as to what they say. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So, we know that on the last day, Christ will return. We'll see him visibly once again. And that will mean that we will get to be with him in heaven eternally. And heaven is just the place of God's presence, or the place where God resides. I mean, if you want to put it that way. I think a lot of people assume heaven is up, hell is down, right? Because that's the way it's described to us when we're children. So someday we're going to shoot up like a rocket and we're going to be up in that place called heaven. Well, we don't really know that it's up. I mean, uh, maybe, I mean, we don't have a, a location. If you try to put it on Google Maps, you're not going to find heaven. But as we think about Jesus' ascension, we do hear this language in the scriptures that he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And again, this is one of those phrases that's very often misunderstood. What does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father? And I think that, that uh, phrase, the right hand of God the Father, conjures up in our minds images of Jesus sitting in a chair at God's right hand. He's in his Jesus chair up in heaven. So if you want to know, you ask somebody, where is Jesus now? That's easy. The Bible says he's at the right hand of God the Father. So they picture him in his little Jesus chair up in heaven at God's right hand. The problem, as we alluded to in an earlier episode, is that God is spirit. He does not have flesh and blood as you and I do. So these kind of expressions, the right hand of God, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, or the right hand of the Lord has dealt valiantly or whatever. Uh, we, we said this earlier, that, that is not a, a literal reference to God's right hand because he doesn't have a right hand or to his eyes because he doesn't have eyes since God is spirit. So when we think about Jesus being seated at God's right hand, the scriptures mean something different from that. And we're not trying to read into the Bible a different interpretation. We're just taking that phrase that was, uh, as it was understood and explaining it in a way that we can, we can grasp it now. So what does it mean that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father? In Ephesians 1 verses 
20 through 23, it says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay, so that sounds like, well, he's in that place called heaven. He's far away or wherever that is. And it says, he, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Notice there the description of what it means to be seated at God's right hand talks about how God has put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to his church. In other words, we're talking about an authority, a, a, a rule, a power, if you will. In Romans chapter 8, St. Paul says, Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, Christ is in heaven as our high priest. He pleads our case before God the Father. If you think about uh, a courtroom picture, very often you've got attorneys, right, that represent one side or the other, and they're going to plead their case before the judge. Well, when it comes to the law, you and I stand guilty uh, as charged. According to the law, we have sinned and transgressed the law. We deserved God's eternal wrath and punishment. We've brought the curse of the law upon ourselves. But Christ has stepped in, in our place. He has taken that curse upon himself. He has paid for our sins in full, and now he has risen and ascended into heaven where he intercedes on our behalf. He's our advocate. Every time our sins would accuse us, he, he can point to his blood, his blood that was shed once for all as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's there on our behalf making intercession. This is a comfort to us. He's not standing idly by just watching things that are going on down here. That's the, the picture that a lot of people have. In John chapter 16, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Christ's ascension means that it's now time for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the New Testament church. And we see that happen on the day of Pentecost, which we'll explore more of the work, the, the important work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in a future episode. But as we see, Christ's ascension to the right hand of God the Father is important for many different reasons. Uh, he is now ruling over all things for the sake of his church. He sends out the Holy Spirit through the means of grace, the gospel in word and sacrament. And as both God and man, he rules in divine glory over all things for the benefit of his church. Now, you know, we've, we've covered most of these steps of Christ's state of exaltation from the Apostles' Creed. But we might want to sort of summarize all of this. We've been talking the last two episodes about those things that Jesus did on our behalf to be our Savior and continues to do on our behalf as our Savior. What is the purpose of Christ's entire work of redemption? In Revelation chapter 5, we read, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus died for our sins in order to redeem us, to reconcile us to God, 
not so that we could continue in service to sin or as slaves to sin or in service to Satan, but so that we might live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Again, he did not redeem us and set us free from slavery to sin so that we could continue to live in it. It doesn't mean that Christians become perfect. By, by no means is that true. Uh, in fact, if you ever meet a, a perfect Christian, uh, make sure you get their phone number because I want to talk to them. I want to meet them. I want to see them. I've never met one. So we all sin much and we sin daily, and we, in repentance, turn to Christ every single day. And we pick up the pieces and we look to him and his cross for forgiveness and for strength to face each day, for strength to resist temptation, for strength to live as his children in this world, understanding that we don't do that perfectly. The gospel is not a license to sin. It's, it's that safe refuge that we run back to every day because we are sinners and we, because we are not perfect and because we have let him down. We've not loved him perfectly and our neighbor perfectly. We're constantly in need of Christ and his forgiveness. That doesn't change. It never ends in this life. In Luke chapter 1, we see that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Christ has delivered us from our enemies of sin, death, and the devil in order that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness that he bestows upon us in the gospel. And of course, John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that's obviously the gospel in a nutshell, that verse that's so common and and we hear it so often. Uh, But it's that we might have life. And it's not just a generic, oh, you know, the, the life that we always wanted. It's true and lasting life. It's eternal life. Christ himself shares his life, the divine life, with us. He connects us with his own life. His resurrected life becomes our resurrection life. Uh, His death becomes our death. St. Paul uses that language in Romans chapter 6 to speak about baptism. But in essence, everything that belongs to him is now bestowed upon us in the gospel. And we are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are members of the family of God, the household of God, the scriptures say. What an amazing gift. What a comforting thought as as we wrap up this section here. And uh, we'll continue our discussion in our next episode, but I hope you'll join us next time here on Under the Oaks. This is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. 